Morning, church. Thanks again for your very warm welcome. Um, never thought I got to meet Pastor Jeff. Um, it's always unnerving preaching to a pastor. <laughs> Don't care who it is. When you're preaching to a pastor, it's always unnerving. Um, and I sincerely hope that Pastor Jeff is not working on a series from 1 Peter. Tell me you're not. Oh, <laughs> no, it wasn't, because always check. Um, I felt led when I had the opportunity to speak to you two, two weeks in succession. I thought, that's four messages. That gives me an opportunity to, do, to take a little book. So we're not going to complete it, but um, 1 Peter is, is one of my favorite New Testament books, which I will qualify by saying that each time I prepare a series of messages from a book, that book becomes one of my favorite books. And the reason is simple, folks. Um, whenever you're in a situation where you have to dig deep into God's Word, you will invariably find treasure. Uh, and the reason that you and I very often don't is because we are content just to rake over the surface. Sometimes when you have to go deep, you find wonderful, wonderful things. And... Um, I found wonderful things in 1 Peter a few years ago, and I thought this was an opportunity to, to, to bring it back out again. Um, Peter, uh, as well as that, I think that there's just this knowledge that we're, we're reading words written by someone that we can identify with, the Apostle Peter, who um, was a disciple of Jesus, who was um, guilty of incredibly inept expressions and feelings at times, who fell so far and yet who came so far, who becomes such an incredible apostle of Jesus when he is filled with the Spirit. Um, and later in his ministry, he, we believe he was the primary source behind Mark's gospel. And he also writes two letters which we are so privileged to have in print for us today. Um, so what I'm going to do this morning and this evening is look at two sections of, of 1 Peter and then another two next week, um, beginning just now with his introduction and just the first couple of verses which I'll take and we'll look at that there and then we'll go a little bit deeper in, into the letter. But let me read to you first of all um, from 1 Peter, this is the NIV. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Um, and I, I read that, and I just think, whatever happened to the art of letter writing? I, I don't write letters. Maybe a few of you write letters as well. I don't write letters, but if I was in a situation where I was writing letters to AEC, that letter would begin with a, uh, from Brian to you all in AEC, what about you? Hope you're well. Uh, and then I'm in. And it just doesn't have the the power and authority and the beauty and the gravitas that Peter musters here in just a couple of lines. Get this, folks. 
to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout these provinces in the north of, of Asia Minor, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace. Uh, that is just magnificent. Peter's writing um, probably uh, about 60 AD. Um, that's 30 years or so after the earthly ministry of Jesus and his erratic faith um, during that earthly ministry of Jesus has been refined in the crucible of suffering and he is now full of power and the Holy Spirit. And he writes to these believers. He's writing to believers in churches scattered throughout the north of Asia Minor. That's present-day Turkey, more or less. He calls them foreigners. Or some versions read aliens. And also he calls them strangers. Now, the former term that is translated foreigners or aliens is an expression um, that really refers to people who are living in a given country, but they're not uh, citizens of that country. They don't have the rights of citizens of that country. The second term, the strangers, is simply people who are temporary residents in a country. Um, Scholars and, and commentators are not fully agreed as to what exactly Peter meant when he used these expressions, because... They were terms that were regularly used of Jews who were no longer living in Palestine. They were exiles and they were strangers. But Peter is not writing just to Jews. He's writing also to Gentiles. So he's obviously using the terms in a more general sense. And here are the two possibilities. Is he saying that they are aliens and exiles and strangers because... Their normal home is in Palestine, but now they're living in Asia Minor? Or is he saying that they are exiles and strangers because their normal home or their real home is in heaven, but they're currently living on earth? Is he using the term literally or metaphorically? Um, I like to think that he's using it metaphorically. Perhaps he's using it in both senses. But even if when Peter wrote, He is not using it metaphorically, and he literally meant that their normal home was in another land, and they were at this time living somewhere else. Scripture gives us very good reason to believe and to know that we are, as believers, we are exiles and strangers. We have a lot in common with those to whom Peter was writing. These believers in Asia Minor... Uh, were not in their home country. They were temporary residents. They did not have the rights of citizens. We have good reason to believe that many of these people to whom Peter was writing were already poor, already drawn from the lower classes of society, already somewhat marginalized and alienated even before they came to faith. In Jesus, And that coming to faith in Jesus and embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ would only further alienate them and marginalize them in society in which they were living. These people were misunderstood, um, even despised. Their daily 
experience of life would be encountering suspicion, um, misunderstanding, ridicule, even hostility. That was their daily experience. Peter knew that that was going to get worse before it got better. There was serious persecution coming. Uh, if he is writing in the early 60s, Nero uh, is emperor and things are going to get rough. And so Peter writes to encourage these believers. He tells us at the end of the letter in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. He wants them to know from the very beginning that what they have received in Christ, their faith in Christ, and all that that means more than compensates, infinitely more than compensates for any loss of social status and security. These believers were aliens. They were strangers. They were put down. Listen to what Peter says in his greetings to them. You may be marginalized, and you may be misunderstood, and you may be going through a really tough time, but I want you to know that you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. You are marginalized and rejected by the society you live in, but you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They reject you, but God chose you. Um, and I don't know where or how you react when you, as a believer, are told that you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Um, I hope it thrills you. Um, uh, and this is one of my issues about so many things, and you've heard me saying this before, but predestination, the truth, this is scriptural truth, that God chose us. God chose me, and God chose you. I can point to a, a time in my life when I came in faith to Jesus, and I knelt before him, and I gave him my life, but in reality, I was responding to God's choice of me. And I do not understand that. And on this side of eternity, at least I am never going to be able to reconcile that with my responsibility and my free will. But I know that that is truth. Uh, Bruce Milne, theologian, made this helpful remark that when Peter wrote that, when Peter wrote about the doctrine of predestination, he wasn't sitting at his desk wrestling with conflicting theological viewpoints. He was on his knees in worship and adoration. And 
this truth of the foreknowledge of God in choosing us as His people is, is one of those wonderful biblical truths, like the second coming, for example, which so often is just lost in a, in a stormy sea of controversy and arguments and people striving to make sense out of it when we should be down on our knees saying, thank you, God, because you chose me. Peter wants these believers just to, to know that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Our citizenship, like that of those to whom Peter was writing, is not on earth, it is in heaven. Our primary loyalty as believers is to Jesus Christ, not to any human authority. Our primary constitution is not to the laws and customs of the United Kingdom, but to the Word of God. Our desires and our longings are not for this world, but for the next. At least they ought to be. We are aliens and strangers. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I know that when I watch the news and when I read newspapers and I see what politicians are saying and when I see people dancing in the streets with excitement because the law on abortion is going to be liberalized, I think to myself, I don't belong here. There's something radically different between the way that I am thinking and what other people obviously think. When I see what is happening in society, I just fail to be able to embrace it, and I become more and more conscious that I am an alien. I am, I am an alien. This is not my home. I am an alien because God has made me a new creature in Christ, and God has made you a new creature in Christ. And so the values and customs of this world no longer fit Something radical has happened to us. We are instructed in Scripture to live as aliens. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't conform to it. This world, this society that you're living in, is going to try to mold you into a certain kind of person, a certain way of thinking, and you must resist it. Do not be conformed to this world, to the principles and the values of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what a tragedy, church, it is when, when someone who is an alien, when someone that God has made a temporary resident in this world comes to love this world. When they forget their identity in Christ and they find themselves drawn into this world. There's a desperately sad verse in Second Timothy. Uh, Paul 
um, in, in two of his letters, Colossians and Philemon, refers to a, a fellow worker called Demas, who he ranks alongside Luke and Mark. But in Second Timothy, he wrote these words to the church there, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Demas, my, my fellow worker, uh, a fellow believer, someone who loved Jesus, has now fallen in love with this world and has deserted me. And so the question is, and I think the question that Peter is answering for these believers in the north of Asia Minor is this. You are aliens in this world. This is how you are to live. How are we to live today in a world that increasingly rejects us, that treats us as outsiders, as fanatics, as radicals, as dangerous, who are increasingly trying to liberalize laws so that they are no longer vaguely reminiscent of the values of Scripture. Um, How are we to live in this world as aliens? How are we to live in this world um, in such a way that we shine in such a way that we are salt, in such a way that we make a difference, in such a way that we are faithful to the Word of God. Um, And the answer, I'm taking far too long to introduce this, Um, I want to think this morning about the first section of 1 Peter, so the theme is living in hope, Uh, and then this evening, I'll only go as far as that for the minute, uh, our second study together will be living in holiness. Peter calls these first believers in this situation to live in hope uh, and then to live in holiness. So, live in hope. So, let me read to you now the the, the main part of our passage this morning. Living in hope. I'm going to read from verse 3 down to verse 12. Praise be to the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Peter begins this section with um, 
praise, blessing. It's a, it's a customary Jewish way of starting a prayer. Blessed be to God, or praise be to God, as we would say. Blessed be, and his theme is their hope, their living hope of those who have been called according to the foreknowledge of God and by being sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, what is not evident in your English translation there, in those um, 10 verses from verse 3 down to verse 12, is that in Greek, that is one sentence, okay? Those 12 verses in Greek is one massive sentence in Greek. And yet, uh, one scholar who knows about Greek, because I don't, calls them um, profoundly expressive and wonderfully elegant. Let me tell you what happens here, I believe, is that Peter, um, I don't know whether he's writing this himself or whether he's dictating this to an amanuensis. I think he is probably dictating it to an amanuensis. But in any case, Peter begins, and he wants to share what is on his heart. He wants these believers in Asia Minor to know what is the, the glorious hope that they have in Christ. And he starts, and he shares something, which rolls into something else, which rolls into something else. One blessing rolls into another blessing, and he just can't stop. He doesn't even stop for breath. He is so excited. His heart becomes so filled with the knowledge of what God has done for these believers that he just cannot hold it back. Imagine if you were the amanuensis and you've got your quill pen and he is dictating this and you have what we call 10 verses and he just keeps going and going and going and going. It's just so filled with this and we miss it because there's just so much there. So what I want to do just for a moment is to give you this simple outline of what Peter is saying in these 10 verses summarized so that you can get the kind of flow of his thinking from one thought to the next thought. And this is what it would read like. Peter blesses God for his great mercy in giving his people new birth, which leads to a living hope and future final salvation, which enables them to rejoice in spite of present suffering. And that suffering will ultimately prove and refine their faith and bring glory and honor when Christ is revealed. And that Christ they now love and trust, though they have never seen him, as they wait with inexpressible joy and progressively receive the goal of their faith, which is the final salvation of their souls. This salvation was the subject of inquiry and longing of the Old Testament prophets who never fully understood it or saw its fulfillment and which even angels long to investigate. One thought leads into something else, leads into something else. He wants them to grasp this truth, this hope. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy, in his great mercy. Let's start there. In his great mercy. See, God is love. God is glorious, infinite, boundless, perfect, pure, everlasting love. And what happens when this unstoppable juggernaut of God's love encounters someone like me, someone like you, a sinner, someone who is rebellious, someone who is lost in, some, in sin, someone who is dead in sin? What happens 
when the juggernaut of God's love comes in contact with a sinner. What happens, church, is mercy. When God's love reaches a sinner, what happens is mercy. In his great mercy. Mercy is simply God's love when it encounters sinners. It is God's great reluctance to punish sinners. It is God's persistent refusal to give up on people like us. That's mercy. And when God's love encounters us, the result is mercy. And in His great mercy, God does all this for us. He does all this for the believers in Asia Minor. And the cost was immense because Peter will later tell us in his epistle that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That was the cost. God chose us before the beginning of time. He chose us to pour out his mercy upon us. And the danger with being told that is the danger that we somehow come to think that there was something worthy in us, something that made us better than others because if God chose us and did not choose someone else, then there must be something better about me. But there's not. There's not. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That's why he saved us, because of his mercy. Uh, when I was reading over this just yesterday afternoon, I was thinking about a, a, a song that I love by Casting Crowns, Who Am I? Maybe you know, you know the words. Uh, just a few lyrics from that song. I am a flower quickly fading, here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean of vapor in the wind still you hear me when I'm calling Lord you catch me when I'm falling and you've told me who I am I am yours not because of who I am but because of what you've done not because of what I've done but because of who you are I am yours and in his great mercy God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead he has given us new birth um, it's one of those Christian expressions which we're so familiar with and as a consequence of being so familiar with it, we've, we've lost, I think, I have lost, I'm sure, the sense of wonder. Uh, wouldn't it be great to, to be able to go back and to, to hear that expression the way that Nicodemus heard it when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you have to be born again, Nicodemus. If you want to enter into God's kingdom, you have to be born again. And he, he couldn't understand it. Of course, we understand it because for us it's just almost a cliche. <laughs> to be born again, church, is a staggering mystery. To be dead and in sin and to be made alive in Christ. To be lost and to be found, to be made a new creation in Christ. He has given us new birth. Um, a long time before this, the prophet Jeremiah 
uh, was speaking to the people of Judah who were engaged in persistent sin and they had so many opportunities to repent but they would not repent and judgment was coming and Jeremiah asked this question, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Can a leopard change its spots? No. Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? No. And you, Judah, says Jeremiah, you who are so accustomed to doing evil, you will never do good. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is meant to be a resounding, no, they cannot change their spots. But in Christ, AEC this morning, the answer is a resounding yes. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, the answer today to that question, can an Ethiopian change its spots and can a... Uh, can an Ethiopian, did I say that? Did I really say can an Ethiopian change its spots? And you didn't even grin until I said that there. Wake up. Um, can a leopard change its spots? Yes! You and I can change. You and I can change because God does a work in us. He gives us new birth. He gives us a new heart. We can change. And people who have been accustomed to doing evil can start doing good. Uh, this new birth that comes to us, Peter says, derives its power and its energy from the resurrection of Jesus. It's through the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a hope which sustains us in the present, but its horizon, its focus is what is yet to come. Because what is yet to come, church, is into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You've got that, okay? I want you to know this morning that if you're a believer, if you love Jesus, you have an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. William MacDonald uh, commenting on that said, it's an inheritance that is death-proof and sin-proof and time-proof proof, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fail. I don't know if you often think about heaven. I, I, I honestly, I don't. Maybe I'm just too super chilled or something. I, I, I don't know. People often ask me, what do you think heaven's like? I think people who, who have gone through tragedy, people who are seriously ill, people who have lost loved ones will always be drawn to think about heaven. And they say to me, well, what do you think heaven's like? And I go, you know, I'm happy to wait and see. You know, I don't think a lot about it. I don't think we have enough information. But I find a couple of quotations I'm going to share with you this morning because these do help me. What is heaven like? Bruce Milne says this, we may be confident that the crowning wonder of our experience in the heavenly realm will be the endless exploration of that unutterable beauty and majesty and love and holiness and power and joy and grace, which is God himself. I'm happy with that. What's heaven like? Whatever it's like, all I want to know is this, that it will be the endless exploration of God. That's an eternity of exploring to know God. Another writer, Lewis Meads, comments this. When I do, which is rarely, he says, itch for heaven, I find that what I really want there is the fulfillment of all that is good about life now. 
but with its beauty never blotched with ugliness, its pleasure never choked with pain, its plenty never mocked by unfairness to others, its truth never hid by falsehood, its goodness never compromised by evil, and the discovery every day anew that our very beings are alive with God. And that inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven for you. Now that's very comforting. The one cloud perhaps in the horizon sometimes is this, that we think to ourselves, okay, God, you've got that reserved in heaven for me. You've bought it. You've purchased it. You've set it apart. It's got my name on it. It's there in heaven. But sometimes in our own lives, in our own experience, we think, you know, God, I'm never going to make it because my life is so inconsistent. It is so erratic. My, my commitment to you is so erratic. I fall time and time again. I am so weak. I'm so vulnerable. I wrestle with sin. I wrestle with the flesh. God, will I ever get to that place where I receive that inheritance? And here's the good news because Peter hasn't finished yet. He says that inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And then he says, and you through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's kept for you. Christian, and you are being kept for it. God is not putting more effort into keeping that inheritance than keeping you. He's keeping it, and he's sustaining you. And the channel through which we receive all that is faith. Until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Until the coming of the salvation. Um, which might sound odd to some because surely we've got it already, haven't we? We've got salvation. We're saved. We are God's people. We are saved already. So why is Peter saying that there's salvation that is coming? Because the salvation that you have right now look, is not the whole picture, folks. You're just starting to get it. There's more salvation on the way. There's more salvation because you are saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification. You're saved from the penalty of sin, and that is past, and you are being saved right now from the power of sin. That is sanctification, but there is a salvation which is yet to come beyond that, and that is final salvation when you're saved from the very presence of sin. When you receive a new body, when you are set for eternity and you're made ready for eternity, and Peter is saying, look, all this is still to come. You've got grace, but there's grace still to come. What comes when Christ comes is more grace. In all this, he says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, can, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In all this, you greatly rejoice in all this. So Peter now looks back and he says, right, for a moment, church, I want you to reflect on all that I have just told you, that you are chosen and you are being sanctified for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
and you have received living hope, and you're a new creation in Christ, and you've been born again, and you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoiler fate, and God is keeping you and holding you through faith to receive that inheritance when you get to glory. And in light of all that, because of all that, you can now rejoice, even though you are suffering grief and all kinds of trials. We don't rejoice because of our trials. We rejoice in spite of our trials because what we're rejoicing in is not the trials, but the incredible promises of God. Enduring these trials refines their faith just as fire refines gold. And Peter also wants these believers to know that this suffering that they're currently enduring is not wasted, it's not lost, it's not meaningless because God can take that and use it to refine their faith so that there is glory and praise when Christ returns. It's never meaningless. You know, whenever you and I suffer, whenever you and I are going through difficult times, trials in our Christian life, it is never, ever meaningless. As God uses it to to refine us. Um, I'm just, I want to stop. Uh, I must have talked much faster last time I did this. (laughs) Um, I'm sure you know the song, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Leaning, leaning. Yes, don't look at me like that. (laughs) I wasn't that bad. Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Um, I, I looked it up. We haven't sung at Newton Breda for a million years. Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. And we sing it with such gusto, or we used to in Newton Breda. I remember singing it with such gusto in Newton Breda. But it wasn't true, church. Well, it was true. But I wasn't leaning on the everlasting arms. And the people standing beside me, I don't think we're leaning on the everlasting arms because what we're leaning on, what we're propped up with is all the the temporary blessings that God gives to us for our joy and comfort, but not for our security. And we lean on them. They're, They're crutches all around us. They're walking frames that we go along with. And we think we're leaning on the everlasting arms and we never know what it is to me to, to lean on the everlasting arms and God takes those crutches and throws them away until he takes that walking frame and throws it away and he allows us to sometimes fall to the floor and then he picks us up and then we start leaning on the everlasting arms and we find out the joy and the security and the warmth and the thrill of leaning on the everlasting arms and these believers in Asia Minor they had no crutches and they had no walking frames. They had nothing to help. They were leaning on the everlasting arms because that is where we come to when we are at the end of our tether. We love him even though I haven't seen him. Ray Palmer, a 19th century hymn writer, yet though I have not seen and still must rest in faith alone, I love thee, dearest Lord, and will unseen, but not unknown. Genuine faith tested and refined by trials results in an ever greater love for Jesus and an inexpressible joy. And I I close with this because I, in truth, church, when I read that, I thought, God, why do I not have in my life now 
inexpressible joy, because I didn't. I didn't. Maybe you do, but I, I didn't. Why do I not have that inexpressible joy? I'll tell you why I didn't have it. Because I wasn't looking that direction. Because my mind is not focused and was not focused on the hope that is to come when Christ is revealed. Because so long as I'm looking out this direction, there's too much that is fragile and insecure for me to ever know inexpressible joy. But when I look that direction, when I focus my mind on the reality that this world is temporary, that I'm an alien living in it, and my inheritance and my true citizenship is in heaven, that's when I find joy which is beyond imagination. These believers were focused on that because it's all they had. And thanks be to God who occasionally lets me lean on the everlasting arms and causes me to tilt my head backwards and look up and say, yeah, this is what is coming my direction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for...